everyone. Welcome back to the Nutrition Lifestyles with Kim and Joanne. I'm Kim. And I'm Joanne. And today on the podcast, we have a very interesting guest that we want to introduce you to. I am just super excited because I have been Instagram stalking this particular person (laughs) for about a year now, to tell you the truth. I'm going to put myself out there. So, Yazi, go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. Hello, or Yate. My name is Brian Yazi. I am Navajo or Dene. I come from a small community called Dinahotso, Arizona, which is located on the northeast part of the Navajo Nation. And if you're familiar with Mountain Valley or the old Western movies that have the rock formations in the background, that is basically my community. So I live about five minutes south of those rock formations. You know, so I come from a small community on the Navajo Nation, and currently I reside in the Twin Cities or St. Paul, Minnesota, with my wife, Hunmana. And I am an indigenous chef, and I focus on indigenous food cultures of the Americas, specifically of North America. And I am the new executive chef at Gatherings Cafe, which is located inside the Minneapolis American Indian Center in the South Minneapolis neighborhood. I love it. I love it. So so that the audience can know, what do you prefer to go by? Is it Brian or is it Yazi or does it not matter? I would say Yazi. Does it mean anything? It's just a name. But that's a great idea because I can definitely look into my, my family history of what Yazi means. For Navajo tribe, Yazi is one of the most common last names. So Yazi, Sosi, and Begay are officially like the three common names that if you hear those last names, you already know that person's Navajo or part Navajo. <laughs> okay. I'm loving it. I love it. If someone is wanting to correctly address someone who's indigenous or Native American, what is the correct terminology? It depends, you know, on your own perspective as an individual or as a family or as an organization, right? For me as an individual, I identify myself as my tribe, which is Navajo, or in my tribal language, it's known as Navajo is D-I-N-E. It's almost like spelling the word dying. So you say Dene. In translation, it means people of the surface in my tribal language. So I first identify myself as my tribal name. And secondly, you know, I introduce myself as indigenous person. You know, so, and I can say I'm an American citizen too, but, you know, I'm Native American or I'm indigenous before the history of North America came about, you know, so, so for that reason, I introduced myself as my tribal affiliate. Right. That makes total sense. As as you should, this is your land. Okay. (laughs) You know, the other day, it was actually this weekend, I was in Clearwater, Florida, and I passed by a Seminole Hard Rock. It was a, uh, Joanne, you're from Florida. What is it called? It's a casino. There we go. (laughs) Kim, come on your words today. Mm-hmm. And I was just saying to myself, like, oh, my goodness, look at, you know, this is amazing. To me, it's absolutely amazing because I feel that the traditional indigenous Native Americans are not recognized. And I'm just saying to myself, it's just amazing to me. So, you know, the fact to be Speaking with you, Yazi, I'm just, I'm like fangirling over here. I'm just like floored. So I'm excited about this podcast. So I am. So, you know, we were talking prior to starting, you were talking about how different people address themselves as, as Indians, like people from India, and then there's Native Americans. And even like us growing up or coming from the Caribbean, there's the West Indies, like the West Indians. They address that, which is funny to me, just because homeboy landed at the wrong spot and called it India because I'm from Haiti. <laughs> and, you know, when he landed there, that's so they call they call us, you know, we, we're from the West Indies. But growing up, I was like, what? What do you mean? West Indies? I thought India was over there. Like, how is this West Indies? It's so confusing, you know? Yeah, for sure. It is confusing, you know, on that topic, you know, which is why I always say I'm an indigenous, you know, from North America. You know, so that kind of specifically narrows down the identity that I represent. For example, if you say I'm an American Indian, that way that can be taken as a confusion because you might someone might take it as in you're an Indian from India, but you're also an American citizen. 
you know, so it, it definitely, you know, definitely is confusion, but it just depends how you identify yourself. You know, there, there are some people who identify themselves as American Indians, or there's some that, that say they are Native American. And there are some that would just say they're their tribal affiliate and they won't say that they are American. It depends on the platform you're on, meaning if you're an average tribal citizen, if you're an, an activist, if you're a politician, you know, so there's just different philosophies of, of the um, identity of the indigenous people of the Americas. And not just that, you know, we're all indigenous to a certain place and time, right? And some of us still have access or still have knowledge of our own history. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So did you grow up in a traditional reservation? And is that even the proper terminology that should be used? It depends. So for me, my tribe, you can say Navajo reservation or else you can say Navajo nation. So we all, we have always been a nation before our community were known as a reservation. You know, so if you, so res, the history of reservation came about, you know, around the 1800s, mid 1800s, when internment camps came about. So tribes were given numbers or now known as social security numbers, right? With that identity, you know, it, it really goes back that far. You know, if you want to talk about the history of colonization and not knowing what that means from that perspective. I'm so happy you called it internment camp because that's what it was. You know, they were yeah. trying to put people just like they did us slaves, African descent. They were trying to, you know, put you in your spot and they try to put a, a nice, pretty name to it to make it not sound like what it was, but that's what it was, an internment camp. I agree with that. For, for sure, you know, and for me, you know, I'm an uncle with over 22 nieces and nephews, mm-hmm. and about wow. 17 of those nieces and nephews are Afro-Indigenous. You know, they are African-American, wow. and, and they are the Nav- or Navajo. You know, so they definitely have lovely hair, the lovely skin color and everything. But looking at that, you know, knowing the negative history of slavery and knowing the, the history of Afro-Indigenous, to me, it's a very powerful spirit because, because if you look at the history of it, you know, the way slavery came about and the way colonization came about, the Americas, our food culture were taken away. That was the only way our people were able to surrender. So that was the government's way of, of doing that or colonization. And now if you look at the current history of Afro-Indigenous, especially the food culture, you know, there's people out there like Chef Twitty, you know. So, yeah, people out there doing that type of work who focus on Afro-Indigenous food culture, you know, and, and knowing that when in the mid hike of, of slavery, you had Afro ancestors who were escaping those plantations and they were running to, to the nearby tribal community and they were able to be taught or learn how to plant in a new world, as they would say. So, you know, corn, bean, and squash, all these stuff came about in the Americas. So teaching th- these slave ancestors during that time, and they were able to take that back to the plantation and they were teaching the colonizers how to plant, you know, the, the, these. And then when the new world came about, they were able to take over these farms and they knew the history of corn, bean, and squash and tomatoes. So there's that resiliency of connection between indigenous and Afro before the struggle, that negativity of how they connect. And then now looking at the, the modern world of, of how, you know, there's that connection through these group of indigenous people that come from two different worlds. Wow, that's powerful. That is absolutely powerful, which brings me to the next question that I have for you, Yazi. It's actually a two-part question because I actually want to call out one particular politician by name. But before I do that, I, I wanted to know, how do Indigenous Americans like yourself feel? Like, do you feel a part of the modern American culture or as if you're being pushed out? You know, I think we have been pushed out, you know, for over 500 years, right? But but now with social media presence and w- mm-hmm. with the media, I feel like, and I'm not talking about mainstream media, I'm talking about Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, you know, whatever it is. So you have these new generation of Indigenous people who are focused on doing protests, doing ground foot work, doing action work through social media and also with boots on the ground. So it's seeing that new age I feel like we're, we're walking in two worlds. You know, it's kind of the same philosophy I use in my cooking is cooking in two worlds, you know, having an ancestral knowledge of modern techniques. So as protesters or activists, you know, you have you have this ancestral knowledge of a war party perspective, right? You're, you're going into war, you're resilient and you're having that pride, but you're navigating in different ways with social media, through the streets, through politics, you know, and, and then knowing 
what war to take on or what type of what, what type of situation you can handle. So I kind of feel like we're in that phase of walking in two worlds, being able to carry that knowledge of the landscape, you know, especially with climate change right now and talking about, you know, the basics and the fundamentals of living, right? The, the, the humanity, you know, I mean, for example, if you're paleo diet or keto diet, right? That's basically just an indigenous diet, you know, depending where you're at. So it, it's organic for sure, but the basic is, those organic, organic ingredients, something that can be found within the landscape, you know. So it's just returning to basics and knowing that basic knowledge is is cosmo on so many levels. I think that's powerful, especially when you mentioned, you know, knowing which war to fight. There was something that you had posted on your Instagram. I think it was about maybe two and a half, three weeks ago, and there was this little girl. Her nation was fighting to keep her because, like the government was going to come in and they're going to take her away. And then like the people were protesting and we're like, no, she has aunts and uncles. Like we're going to keep her. And that shows the importance of keeping the nation alive in the minds of the next generation and the importance of food, the importance of traditions, the importance of identity and knowing who you are. And I just thought that was powerful, extremely powerful because I mean, we've seen it in other cultures, people being stolen from when they're small and being told something that's not a part of their history and just losing that piece of themselves. So I love the fact that you interweave food into this because a lot of people don't realize like, hey, corn, you know, come on now, give us credit, squash, give us credit. I just think that's that's really neat because I see that these foods are being termed out like now, oh, quote unquote, superfoods, like you put a new label on it, but come on, it has history. This thing has history. What's great about Indigenous people, as you were speaking about the connection you have to fill with the foods of your people, and I'm like, you know, as a Haitian American, I'm so proud of being a Haitian American and my food culture, you know, I talk about it all the time, but technically that's like a melting pot of French colonization, Spain and Africa, but I don't know which parts are really the African part. Like, I don't have a true connection to to say, okay, these are the foods that we were eating up in Africa before they stole us and brought us here. You know what I'm saying? So that is kind of, that's really awesome that you still have a connection to know, like, these are the foods that my people have eaten for generations upon generations upon generations. For sure. You know, that, you know, it definitely makes sense knowing that because, for indigenous food, you know, if you talk about, if you Google or, or talk to the average person, say, what's a popular Native American dish, you know, and they would say fried bread or Indian taco, right? And basically what that is, it's a fried bread or fried dough, and it has a topping of uh, refried beans, tomatoes, onions, even some um, fresh greens. It can be ground beef, you know, but now with the healthier perspective, you know, you can do ground bison or turkey. But if you ask for um, Native American food, that's one of the things that, you know, so many people would understand, you know. But then if you look at that, this is post-reservation or post-colonization. Because before colonization or before a European or Spanish contact, you know, within the Americas, the food culture, there was no gluten, there was no flour, no wheat flour, and there was no dairy or any type of products like that, processed sugar, right? It's just kind of touching on that perspective that you're saying, having these different fusion food and looking at the Spaniard connect coming from South America, Mexico, coming to modern day Arizona, right? And if you look at the Indian or if you, if you Google Navajo taco, you'll know what I'm talking about. And it kind of resembles Mexican food in a way, you know, so you have that cross culture coming from the South, you know, you have that colonization of wheat flour, but then that's a highlight of post-reservation food. But if you look at pre-reservation food or pre-colonial food, it's basically, you know, depending on what landscape you're in. So I'm here in Minnesota, right off the Mississippi River. So if I take a one mile hike up and down the river, you know, what, if it's in seasonal, what ingredients I would get is probably rabbit or venison you know i would get wild edibles like wild spinach i can get some lamb's quarters i can get some milkweed you know sage cedar sweet grass you know and then looking at the herbs there's herbs there's sumac you know there's wild onions so all this stuff can be found in a one mile radius and for me becoming a chef and knowing this type of lifestyle it's a whole different world you know but at the same time it all connects to your identity 
Right, right. So is Minnesota, is the Navajo Nation indigenous to the Minnesota area? So Navajo Nation is basically so for in the middle of the four states of Arizona, Utah, Colorado, and New Mexico. They would call it the Four Corners area. So basically 25% of each state would be the Navajo Nation. And where I'm at now in central Minnesota, in the Twin Cities, it is originally the um, Dakota homeland and also the Ojibwe territory, meaning the southern part of Minnesota is Dakota, Lakota, and Dakota. So those are all the first letters would be D, L, and N. So Dakota, Lakota, and Dakota. Those are tribes from North Dakota, South Dakota, coming to Southern Minnesota. And if you look at Northern Minnesota, Northern Wisconsin, and going into Southern Canada, you're looking at the Ojibwe culture. There's that division. But yeah, I've been living here for the past, my wife and I, for the past nine years, I believe. I just feel like I've just been totally lied to, extremely lied to. Like, I didn't even realize, like, Dakota, Lakota. I didn't even realize these were Native American words. And, you know, it's so interesting because I, I was emailing a dietitian today and I don't know where she lived, but she told me she's Native American and her name is Dakota. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. But I never put two and two together until you said it. And I'm just like, oh my God. I figured the Dakota, I knew the Dakota was Native American name. I've never heard of Lakota or Nakota. We're not taught these things in school. No, we're not. The closest thing you probably hear about these regional people in the Midwest, you know, probably hear about the Sioux tribe, right? But Sioux is a washed up English or Western perspective of the words Nakota, Lakota, or Dakota. It was kind of like a disrespectful word from the English perspective, you know, but I'm not sure exactly what it means. I believe that that word was taken from a different tribe that was in the neighborhood of those tribes, you know, so it's kind of using a bad word, you know, for that tribe, right? And with the English perspective, that's something that they took over to describe this group of indigenous people. Oh my God. How did you like, I'll never use that word again. I'm telling you, are these things taught within the indigenous nations? This, this history that you're spitting at us, are they taught? Yeah. I mean, mainly it's from the oral history from your grandmas and your elders. Right. But then if you go to the tribal colleges, tribal universities, tribal community schools, 75% of the faculty are Native American or indigenous to that land, or they're indigenous to the Americas, but they're working on tribal communities, you know, so they have some access. If you grew up in that type of establishment, you'll be able to know your history. So for me, I grew up in a community school previously known as a boarding school, you know, so but it turned into a community school in the early 90s. And the way I was taught was the only way I could graduate eighth grade going into high school was one of the, just like you're taking an SAT test, right? So for me, going from a tribal school into high school, one of the tests that we had to pass was learning how to read and write in your own tribal language. So you'd have to write an essay. It can be an essay of one to four or five paragraphs. You know, it depends on the subject, depends on extra credit or how the, the teacher or instructor is, right? So for me, be able to to transition from community or grade school to high school, I had to go through these type of cultural protocols, you know, and not just that, but what's in our curriculum. I remember from Head Start or kindergarten, you know, into grade school, into high school, I remember every semester we had a subject of our Navajo language. So we had an elder or a person who had or had knowledge of indigenous um, or Navajo history and Navajo language and writing. So we were taught at least one subject per semester. It would get challenged, you know, once you go a higher grade into high school. And then with high school, especially on the Navajo Nation, I know it is on some tribal nations, but with the Navajo Nation, the only way you can graduate from one of the tribal owned high school is, again, if you you have to write a a full page or a couple page of writing essay and you speak fully within your language. Yeah. So that's one of like the only ways you can graduate from our community. No, there are a percentage of Navajos who are going to school off the reservation or off the Navajo Nation. But then if you are on the community, you know, this is the way that you graduate. You have to learn your history and know your history before you move on. This is amazing. Amazing. But then again, not every tribal community have that protocol or not just that, but they're not at fault because they have the lack of knowledge in their community, meaning they may have lost the last knowledge holder of their language carrier. So it is hard to do that. But if you look at 
Rosetta Stone right now, you know, if you look at that app, they have some tribal language programs that you can purchase. And the upside about, you know, there's a little upside about having non-Indigenous or Caucasian faculty on the Navajo Nation because they're not forced to, but they have that motivation to learn some Navajo words. For me growing up, we had some non-Indigenous faculty members and, you know, growing up as a kid, you know, had that comfort because they had that community positive balance of, of character, right? But then they were able to speak some Navajo to the kids and understand what the kids were saying, you know? So, so I, I think that was pretty cool to kind of have that type of adaptation in the education history of my community. That is pretty cool, very much so. So how prevalent are food deserts around reservations? And when do you think, like, if you know, did the food insecurities begin? Was it from the very beginning of this internment that they placed you guys in, or do you know? Yeah, so, you know, especially when the pandemic hit, unfortunately, you know, I've been seeing a lot of tribal communities starting up what they would call victory gardens or tribal gardens, right? So I've been seeing a lot of that lately, but I would say not until nine or 10 years ago, I started seeing indigenous food scholars, indigenous food activists, indigenous chefs and cooks. I started seeing more of that, but it wasn't until probably five years ago, I started seeing more tribal farms on tribal nations on the reservation or in urban spaces. Now, I've been seeing a lot a lot of gardens that are coming up and not just that, but a lot of seed saving comes into play. So, you know, you have seed banks across the world that hold on to food culture, right? And there's a lot of seed savers for indigenous people who are starting their own organizations. So they're able to redistribute these seeds that have been long forgotten about what's in tribal communities. You know, so for example, I have a small cultivation plot on my balcony I reside on the fourth floor of an apartment complex and I have about a two foot by four foot plots on my balcony. And I had about 11 corn that I grew and I grew about two varieties of beans, you know, so that was my my first year of doing that. I think that that's pretty cool to kind of do something on your own, even though you don't have that much knowledge of, but it will definitely pick up that momentum. So like I was saying There are a lot of tribal communities who are starting up farms and I do a lot of virtual cookings with these groups and with these youth groups, you know, because for me growing up without a father and just a single parent household, you know, I always had that love for unconditional love that my mom showed me. So I always try and share that with the kids today, especially indigenous kids, because I never had that when I was growing up. So it's like for, for me to know that struggle and to be where I'm at now, it's like, you know, it's definitely something that I do have to give back. So when you say seed saver, Are these seeds like indigenous seeds? Yes. So they are non-GMO, non-hybrid. They're all the original strands, if you may, of different varieties. For example, you probably are familiar with candy roasters, squash, right? Mm -hmm. The mother strand of that has recently been found probably about five, six, seven years ago, somewhere in northern Wisconsin or southern Canada, right? But that original strand came from, I believe, the Cinnamon tribe, from what I heard from Florida area. But then that's kind of similar to what the candy roaster is, but it grows up to at least 50 to 100 pounds, depending on the region you're growing and the elevation you're at. It is the same resemblance as a candy roaster, but it's just like triple the size. That's pretty cool. So for example, you know, there's over 560 tribes federally recognized in North America alone right now. So meaning each tribe, you know, has a corn culture, squash and beans, you know, food culture. So, but then again, for me, for Navajo tribe, there's over five varieties of corn, over like two varieties of squash. So and then like a dozen varieties of beans. So it, it just depends, you know, you can drop a pin in different parts of the U.S. And, and then, you know, you can definitely look at the food culture in the area and it's different from something that's over the Rockies or, or close to the East Coast, you know. And then it's the same with, with the coastal tribes as well. You know, it's a lot of seafood, a, a lot of salmon and stuff like that. But then they also have corn and squash and beans part of their culture as well. I'm still stuck on the fact that, you know, pre-reservation, everything was gluten-free. Like, I'm still stuck on that. Like, oh, my God. <laughs> and then again, that, that's paleo or, or keto diet, you know? Right. It's just amazing. It's amazing. So let me ask you this. So I'm thinking my head right now is divided. Like, okay, pre-reservation, post-reservation. I'm thinking about 
the health status. And the reason why I'm thinking about the health status for Indigenous Americans is because a couple years ago, when I was the new dietitian, I had the opportunity to meet a Seminole Indian chief. And he came to the hospital. He was admitted in the ICU with diabetes, uncontrolled diabetes. And, you know, I was talking to him, talking to him, talking to him. And I realized to myself, like there was a nurse with him and the nurse worked on the reservation. She was a Caucasian woman. And, you know, she pulled me aside and she was like, you know, diabetes runs rampant in the indigenous community or the Seminole Indians. And I just wanted to know, like, healthcare, right? Do you find that healthcare is easily accessible? Do you find that Indigenous Americans are suffering from illnesses that can be controlled, that there's inequalities, health disparities. What is your experience or what have you seen with that? As a chef, as a cook, as you know, someone that works in, in that, that type of food culture, just like we all are, right? It's easy to look at what is causing obese, you know, what is causing the effects of diabetes, right? For example, with, with the Navajo Nation, like I said, there's so many tribes, but just telling my history of my tribe is how I can explain this. So in the mid-1800s, 1855, 1856 is when the majority of my tribal members surrendered to the U.S. government. And the only reason why that happened was because the corn crops were burned, the wild game animals were chased off, and the water source were cut off. You know, so that's the only reason why a certain percent of my tribe were able to, to surrender. And for me, I come from two community. So I come from Denhotso, which is where my mom's from. And I come from a different place called Navajo Mountain, which is where my dad is from, my dad's family. And the history that I know is that back then, my dad's side of the family, they were able to hide up in the mountains for four days during that massacre or during that march, if you may, right? Or when people were surrendering. So they hid up in the mountains for four days and, you know, and people, when they left, they were able to come back down, but that was only a couple of times a year when they were planting, you know, and harvesting, right? And they were able to connect with the local youth tribes. They were able to exchange ingredients and blankets and stuff like that. So they did that for four years. And four years later, is when the government signed treaty with the Navajo Nation. I believe we are one of the few only tribes in the Americas who were able to sign a treaty and return to their actual homeland and to keep a great percentage of the homeland. And looking at that, they know the, the community ha had to reestablish themselves after four years, right? And they, they had to break new ground. So when that happened, within the mid-1800s, when my tribe were in internment camp or were on the reservation, they were given foreign rations. So they were given lard, pig fat. They were given flour. They were given a certain type of salt. They were given coffee. You know, they were given chicken, pork, and beef. But these were foreign ingredients to my tribe. And that's how fry bread came about. So they were mixing ingredients and they're mixing water with salt. They're mixing baking powder. They're mixing flour and they're frying it. And that's how fry bread came about. And when that happened and when people returned to their homeland for colonization and assimilation, the commodity food program started or now known as food plants in a way. So instead of going out hunting due to gentrification or due to cities growing right every year in the mid early 1800s. So you had food programs given to reservations because the hunters, traditional hunters and chiefs were unable to go out and forage. The ladies were out camp forage. They weren't able to hunt, no demand, because the buildings were popping up, cities were popping up, and they're getting restricted. So the government started this program of feeding basic ingredients that don't have any values at all. And that's how the food stamp program, the commodity food program started and now known as food banks and these different type of institutions. So with the Navajo tribe, that was stuck on and living in rural area, you know, it's the largest reservation, the largest tribe in the U.S. They have to live off of these commodity food programs and there was no value to it. And they didn't have access to their old seeds, you know, didn't have access to, to the wild game. And now, like I said, 10, 11 years ago, we started seeing more posts about indigenous food culture and, and the contemporary indigenous flavors. You know, so now you have these victory gardens or community gardens that are starting up in urban spaces or in tribal communities by indigenous people. And you have seed savers or people have knowledge about seed saving are bringing these 
ancestral ingredients back to the region areas, you know, and now they're able to, to replenish the land and to bring back these types of ingredients to that landscape. It's 500 years of progress, you know, and now it's still happening. So it, it's, for example, there's a farm here in northern Minnesota or just north of the Twin Cities called Dream of Wild Health. And it's a farm, 95% women-led and it's indigenous owned and operated for over 20 years. And they focus on the native inner city youth. So to teach on the farm, to teach youth how to plant, how to harvest, how to process these ingredients and how, and knowing the marketing value of farmer's market during the summer, you know, and, and then after harvest, how to flip the soil, how to get that ready for the next season, you know, and, and also not just that, but they also teach a language skills and then also survival skills as in how to cook outside, how to cook for yourself. You know, so for me, I'm an annual a guest chef, meaning I attend one of their programs uh, at least two weeks out of the year. And I cook with at least two or three interns, a youth, which are between seven to 17 years old, and they would rotate every day. So each, you know, so the whole group can have access to learning the fundamentals of cooking, you know, so we cook for the whole farm staff. It's anywhere from 20 to 25 members and them cook for anywhere a dozen to two dozen um, kids as well the daily five days a week you know so yes yeah, so, so seeing that type of structure and seeing that type of uh, landscape being developed is pretty cool to see definitely that's what i'm talking about for real uh, you know bringing back the indigenous foods because i'm here thinking to myself like okay pre-reservation post-reservation there was a stark change in the food of course so to me you know with all the health in the qualities going around, especially in communities of color, you know, I'm just thinking back to, you know, what you're saying that the foods pre-reservation weren't as starchy and they were full of fiber and they were full of protein. And then you have like the modern day food banks and like the whole entire food structure has changed. So, I mean, knowing that history, like you can definitely trace a lot through just simply the food. So, oh my gosh, this is amazing. You make me want to go back and look up the Jamaican culture and see what it's all about. <laughs> I'm just like flooring. I'm here sitting with like my mouth open. I know everyone listening can't see, but I'm just like, oh my gosh, like wow. I mean, when you think about it, there's a lot of correlation. Colonizers, they come in, they do the same thing, I guess. They rinse and repeat, as they say. They come in, they bring disease, they take away our culture and they feed us the crap, right? That's the same thing they did to people, slaves that they brought in or people they stole turned into slaves, they enslaved in the United States. And they did the same thing to the indigenous people. It's crazy. They rinse and repeat, basically. So this is a question I've always wanted to know. With Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving celebration is big in the United States. And to be honest, believe it or not, it wasn't until a few years ago, I think it was Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie, I read an article about them, and they were saying that they don't even want to be in the United States during Thanksgiving because of what it actually represents. That's when I actually started to think about what Thanksgiving means to people who are part of the indigenous tribes. So I want to know, what is the history of Thanksgiving celebration to your culture? What does that day actually mean to you guys when you see colonized America celebrating it? For sure. Most of the ingredients that the average American family has on the table, 75% of those ingredients are indigenous ingredients of the Americas. Even without not knowing that, and just for me understanding that average American family are eating 75% of indigenous ingredients during the holidays, Thanksgiving, Christmas, you know, but 50% of those ingredients are coming from non-tribal companies. For example, Cisco, U.S. Food, Walmart, Target, right? And those are ingredients that are, have patents. Those are ingredients that are commercially owned by these establishments, right? But for me, I always bring that up because I always tell people, especially the youth, know where your food comes from. Look at the brand, know that, know where that comes from, right? And for me, Thanksgiving, you know, basically, if you're in school, what you're taught is a basic history of, of friendship, right? You have Indians and pilgrims breaking bread, right? Basically, that was the core story of it. But then that's only half of the story. So when settlers came in, in waves, right? And you had indigenous people on the East Coast who were teaching who started the treaties and were teaching these foreigners how to plant, how to live, how to hunt, how to survive, right? And that's how the fur trade came about in Canada, especially because you had indigenous people teaching 
the colonizer for foreigners how to establish themselves in a, in a whole different landscape, right? And, and treaties came about. So the history of Thanksgiving was how, focus on that, the harvesting menu, the, the harvesting season, right? You have a, a group of indigenous people, foreigners, who were in a way breaking bread. Well, that's, that was a perspective from indigenous but then knowing from the colonizer foreigners or, or known as pilgrims, if you may, they were setting up a trap saying that, you know, we're going to feed these indigenous people. We're going to get them full. We're going to have them comfortable. We're going to give them some wine and alcohol that they have never had in their history. You know, we're, we're going to have them illusion, but we're going to have them, you know, drunk. And then that, that's how they started the massacre. That's how they were able to massacre so many tribal members is because they were given not just alcohol, but they were given food that were comfortable. You know, you had women and kids in the same community and they just got ambushed that, that one day, right? And then from there, all the treaties started breaking. The promises started, the ripple effect coming through the East Coast. That was the history of it. For me, with my family and my in-laws, what we try to focus is on family. You know, we don't see it as Thanksgiving, we see it as a family gathering, especially during the pandemic. You know, we've been away from each other for two years and there will be seeing some family members that we haven't seen. So for us, you know, we try and keep it positive where we talk about the real history of Thanksgiving, but also what the meaning was behind that. And sharing that, you know, we, we get a lot of non-Indigenous family friends who are Caucasian and they understand that story and sharing that story at the table, you know, and knowing that history and breaking bread of how it should have been, right? But then again, it depends, you know, indigenous person on the East Coast might have a different perspective, may still have that anger, may, may still have that trauma going through themselves, right? For us, for Navajo, you know, we didn't get hit with that until the mid-1800s. So you had that ripple effect coming from the East Coast and coming from South America, you know, but Thanksgiving, you know, coming from the East Coast, it's just basically, you know, it was it just to make it basic, it was breaking bread, but one side of the group had a different plan was taking over the whole landscape and, and instead of sharing that landscape. Looking at politicians today, looking at the White House, looking at Congress, right? Look, looking at the Declaration of Independence, for example, you know, that came from the Confederate tribe of the Iroquois, that came from the Mohawk tribe, from those tribes, you know, those were the first contact in a way with foreigners. And the foreigners, pilgrims, the colonizers, seeing how the Iroquois Confederate tribes were handling their villages, of handling their day-to-day -day situations as, if you may, politicians, how they were politic and tribal protocols. And that's how the American government came about from that fact. But the American government flipped that in a negative way and just took over the whole North America. Wow. That, shady. Straight shady. That is the first word coming to my head. Speaking about someone else that's shady, in my opinion, how do you feel about Christopher Columbus Day? Let's call it that. How do you feel about Columbus Day? You know, for me, I think the only thing I like about that is the 50% off in storefronts. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. You know, I mean, I don't know why they still have Columbus Day on the calendar. What I would do is aim for those companies who create these calendars. But, you know, there's a lot of cities who are turning up every year, changing Columbus states to indigenous people say, as it should be, you know, but at the same time, Columbus, you know, coming from that Italian history, Italian perspective, you know, if you look at Italian culture in the East Coast, especially in the New York area and Chicago area, they look at Columbus Day as we look at indigenous people say, right? But there has to be that education. There has to be that understanding of sitting at the table and knowing the history of it, you know, and, and, and knowing that how they came about, how foreigners came about to this new land, if you may, is looking for a new home because they were going through the same thing that we went through, through colonization from their homeland. They were escaping colonization, you know, and as some were, but as some had a different mind frame was taking over a whole different world. It is definitely a debate, you know, that keeps happening because, Right now, we have you no know, indigenous people in the armed service. You have indigenous people in, in politics and you have indigenous people in sports. You know, so it's just knowing the history, but then changing that narrative in those spaces and using your platform, how to bring awareness to what is the actual history of indigenous people and how we can move forward. Right, right. You know, I was going to say something else that I wanted to add, you know, because you mentioned, and this was actually supposed to be the second part of my question, but I was kind of like debating, should I even say it or not? I have seen a lot of whitewashing of the indigenous culture, and I know we're not supposed to take people for face value, but there's this one politician, I won't call them by name, and, you know, this politician stated that they were 
an indigenous American, but you know, when they got their ancestry.com 23andme, I don't know what it was. It turned out that they were not indigenous at all. And I hear, and I see a lot of whitewashing going on. So how does one even like come to, I don't even know the question I want to ask Yazi, but do you see that whitewashing going on? Like, how do you feel about it? It is, especially in Canada right now. The Indigenous people in Canada refer themselves as First Nations, as, of course, they were the First Nations before Canada became a nation or, or a country, right? So it's more active in Canada than it is actually in the U.S., you know, if you look at it. You know, for example, there was a Caucasian lady who identified himself as one of the tribal members in Canada, and she was able to get a half a million grant, you know. What? Oh my God. And when people found out that the business activists found out the community, they started calling her out and they started calling out the people who gave the grant that weren't looking at exactly if she is, but they're going off of just what she put on the application that she is part. Right. So, I mean, if you say you're indigenous to a tribe, all someone can do is, okay, you know, what tribe you from, what city, you know, what family, and you should be able to backtrack and stay, you know, for me, I can say, I come from the Alpha Nation. I come from Denahotsa, Arizona, which is my community. And I come from the Yazi family, which is my dad. And I come from the Hoshnik family, which is my mom. I can specifically point out that I am, you know, this person. And not just that, but the Navajos have, they go by clans. So we have four clan systems that we go by. So I can definitely backtrack who I am and where I come from. You know, so right now, especially in, in the film and food industry, there are a lot of Caucasian or non-Indigenous people who identify as Indigenous just so they can get in that circle and to get part of that grant that's been going around. But then again, I'm not saying that Indigenous people get free money or free grant, that there's work that comes up to it, right? But if you're Indigenous, there are some advantage to a certain category. And there are Caucasian or foreign people who caught wind of this and navigating these areas, you know, just what's happening in Canada right now, for example. I can't remember the name of it, but there's a powerful film that came out, a short film that came out recently in Canada, and the director was identifying as an Indigenous person. And she won a couple of awards. You know, she got articles and platform and come to find out she's not Native. She identified as Native just to get into that circle and create that film. It is a whole different world, but, but also the Native community, there is that conflict of blood quantum. You know, a person can be 116 native, can be 20% native, can be half percent native, right? And for example, I have in-laws who are part indigenous and part Caucasian. But knowing your identity again, you know, for example, if you are part native as indigenous perspective, we see you as indigenous person. And the reason why is because you carry yourself as indigenous person and that you know where your family comes from, that you know you're from a certain community and you're balancing that identity that you have. So there is a debate of that, you know, and there is racism within our own tribal community. There are full-blooded indigenous people who kind of have that hatred against people that are part Caucasian. But then again, that's coming from the colonization perspective of hatred. Just that happening, you know, no one had the control of history of that happening. There is blood conflict in the Native community right now, and I think it'll be forever. It's just depending of, um, you know, where you're from again and knowing that you are connected to community. And I'm dealing with that now in the culinary industry because uh, let's say two years ago, right before the pandemic, I'm on Twitter. I'm part of a group called I Collective, and we're a group of seed keepers, seed savers, farmers, food scholars, food activists, cooks, and chefs. And what we do is basically call out the BS, right? We would call it the culinary cultural appropriation of indigenous food. So that's what we do. And when I was on Twitter a couple of years ago, I'm not going to say the name, but there's a Caucasian chef who's pretty well known in the South around Nashville. And what he did was he created a new dish for the new season. And he put a um, Indian taco on the menu and he called it Trail of Tears. And if we know the history of Trail of Tears, it's basically having a Cherokee tribe getting assimilated, getting marched from the East Coast to modern day Oklahoma, right? So that, that's the name, Trail of Tears, is where it came from. It's a negative term. So he ended up using that, you know, and I ended up questioning him through his comments, you know, on Twitter. And he really didn't have anything to say. He just said, well, you know, I'm representing indigenous culture. You know, I'm highlighting that in my restaurant. I'm bringing awareness to it. You know, and I said, okay, first of all, Trail of Tears is something that you shouldn't be using. You know, it's a negative name. You should use a different name for that dish. And 
Not just that. Are you getting these ingredients from tribal sources? Are you buying it from Cisco or, or white companies and calling it native? Are you actually native? You know, are, are you connected with the tribal community? And then he told me he was part Cherokee. So I was like, okay, you know, I know about four or five Cherokee chefs, you know, so let me know what region you're from, what family you're from. So I can confirm that. And he blocked me. So he was lying, saying that he was part Cherokee, you know. And yeah, so then there, there's a female chef that's well-known, you know. She's basically an OG in the community. She's Caucasian. Um, and she made a, a, fry, a fry bread with powdered sugar. And she called it something else, but it was fry bread, you know. And she was trying to romanticize around indigenous food. And I started calling her out on that to not romanticize around genocide. You know, why don't you bring on an indigenous chef onto your show? you know, and do collaboration of what is indigenous food. You know, you, you can help educate your fan base and the world through your platform. And she ended up blocking me. So it's something that has to be said, you know, even though, some, you know, we want to turn our heads, right? We, we want to live in this healthy, balanced life. But at the same time, to make that happen, we have to use our identity and our platform to make that happen. And it's not easy. That's crazy. I mean, these people are so stupid. At the very least, why aren't you consulting someone from the indigenous culture before you even make statements, post anything like that. I'm over here on Google trying to be nosy and be like, what did you say? Nashville celebrity show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lord. oh my gosh. This has been absolutely amazing. I must say I could talk to you for days because I have so many questions and things that have running through my mind in my adulthood from things that you learned as a kid coming into this country as an immigrant and the things that we learned in regards to everything surrounding the Native American culture. There's one thing I can share. I mean, the average American knows what cornmeal is, right? The hot cereal. Right. And the South, you know, you have a different word for it, right? Grits. You have grits. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. You have different words for it. But, you know, basically that that is, you know, an indigenous ingredient, you know, corn. For example, with my tribe, Navajo, or one of our main corn is blue corn. You know, traditionally, it's a blue corn. We have blue corn flour. We have the coarse flour. We have the grits, right? And the story behind that, you know, every indigenous tribe or region has their own story, history with corn. And for us, it's our first and last food for Navajo, for Navajo people. For example, just pretty cool. It's just a cosmo of life, right? The full cycle of life through food. So, you know, if you're an infant becoming a toddler, you know, you're going from drinking milk, you know, from your mom, you know, you have that liquid diet. And then you're coming to toddler, you have the solid diet, you're, you're eating texture, you know, and then you're going through life, you know, and then you have, you're an elder, you're coming to old age, as we say, indigenous community, you're returning to the spirit world, or in a Caucasian perspective, you're going to heaven, right? So that's an elder. And you're going from eating texture food, you're going from having full teeth, you know, eating solid food. And then as you're ever becoming of age, you're going into liquid diet again, you're eating food that are pureed. So for us, cornmeal or grits is one of the main staple, but with Navajo tribe, we call it corn mush. If you look at my Instagram, I just took a trip to Nova Scotia a couple of days ago. My wife and I, we did a Devour International Film and Food Festival, and, and it was focused on indigenous culture. So myself and a Cherokee friend of mine named Taylor Barton, a chef of mine from Oklahoma, she was able to travel with me and represent through the U.S. institutions. You know, so there I did a presentation on blue corn representing the Navajo food culture, you know, and, and I shared that how, you know, you have hot cereal in Nova Scotia, you have oatmeal, right? You have rolled oats, you know, so I was comparing that how blue corn mush or polenta or grits is the same as that, but it's just indigenous to the Americas, you know, so sharing that history, you know, it, it was just standing innovation and it was just like uh, why wasn't I taught that in history or in class right and it's just you know it's just taking the identity away again you know colonizing it and looking at everything from a western perspective and not looking at what it was locally right how do you say corn in your language not da so two syllables not da so be in a d a a not da i'm asking because in Haiti we have a cornmeal dish that's savory we call it maimule and I know corn is indigenous to the Americas. So the Maimule part, I'm not quite sure where that comes from. It's definitely, I don't think it's French. So I was wondering if it was indigenous, like the Mai part. It kind of sounds like ma maize or maize. I think that's how a Mexican area is. Yeah, it'll come from Mexican or come from Spaniard perspective with that language, yeah. Okay, that's where it comes from. Okay, okay. Well, you have 
taught us so much. I mean, like, like I said earlier, we could go on for days with these questions. If someone wants to find you and learn more, where should they go? Where can they find you? Definitely. Before I answer that, I just want to share a little perspective or a small little bring awareness and education to indigenous rights, indigenous food. You know, so during the holidays, you know, what people who are listening on here, the average American, you know, what you could do to support indigenous culture, indigenous food culture is we're all indigenous to a certain place of time. And depending on where you're at in North America, of course, you are on native land, you are on indigenous land. Some of the tribe in the area may have vanished. You know, they may have been moved to a different part of the U.S., you know, but what I would say is Google the local tribes in your area and look at the food history and add that food into your holiday meals. Look at what food was available and Google Native uh, American Indian food and you'll have a, a list of food resources that will come up and it will tell you where in North America you can purchase a certain ingredient and it'll be shipped out to you. You know, or you might find a, a local tribal gift store in your neighborhood and purchase some indigenous ingredients. What I recommend is looking at the food culture in the area and just add that to it, right? I mean, you already have cranberries on your table. You already have turkey. You know, you already have corn, beans, and squash. You're already halfway there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for me, now I look at it in a positive way, looking at the holidays. It's just that, you know, we, our ancestors may have fought for us, you know, and that's because for us to be here, to be the new voice of Indigenous people, right? And it is hard at times, you know, but there are some fun to it. For me, you know, where I can be found is on social media, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. I'm also on YouTube. I go by Yazi the Chef on social media. And I have a YouTube channel called Yazi the Chef TV, where I share my travels, projects, collaborations, easy made recipe videos. You know, so I'm definitely working on that right now to update my website, which is yazithechef.com. You know, so that's definitely where I can be found. And I do catering. I do pop-up dinners. I do presentation on indigenous food culture. I do private dinners, you know, so whatever it is, you know, with food, I'm trying to get my hands around that. <laughs> I'm over here looking for tribes in Georgia. I'm going to take your recommendation and do just that this December, if I'm able to, because I'm due to deliver. I may not, I may not be able to. There is this phone number I can send you guys. And if you text this phone number, if you text your city, and your state, it'll tell you who lives in that area or what tribe used to live in that area. It's pretty cool. You can text any city in the U.S. and it'll, it'll tell you, it'll pinpoint what tribe you live nearby or what tribe you used to reside in that area. Please do. I love that. I would love to have that number. So everyone who is listening today, please go and find Yazi wherever he's at on social media. Support your local indigenous nation any way that you can participate in the recommendation that he has given. I'm actually, I think what we're going to do, Kim, is we're probably going to put a little information about this before the episode comes out so people can oh, for sure for Thanksgiving. And be sure to share, like, and comment on this episode and let your friends know about it. And until next time, guys, we'll see you later. Bye, everyone. Thanks, Yazi. Bye. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity.